they, they draw straws. We read in, or lots, but straws was easier to us to visualize. Jonah gets the short straw. In Proverbs 16.33, it says this, The lot, the straw, is cap, cast into the lap, but if every decision is from the Lord, it's clear that God has caused the storm and that God is now exposing Jonah for the reason of the storm, for his rebellion that has put all of these lives in jeopardy. And here we come to Jonah chapter 1, starting at verse 11, and I'm going to read through to verse 17. Then they said to him, the sailors said to Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew even more and more tempestuous. And Jonah said to them, well, pick me up, hurl me, throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Lord there is the God of Israel now. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, even greater than the storm, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord God of Israel and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. There's a lot of mystery in the story of Jonah and his account and his rebellion. And we have to be, as Christians, we have to be okay with a bit of mystery. Because we can't, we can't figure God out completely. We don't know his thoughts. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. So we have to have a little bit of mystery here. Jonah's rebelling and God brings this massive storm on all those that are with Jonah. And it seems unfair. It seems unloving on the surface anyways. here they are. Jonah has been exposed as the one who's the reason for this storm that's putting all of their lives in jeopardy. And they ask a question to Jonah, well, what shall we do so that the sea, it may, sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. It was raging more and more. The, the boat was breaking apart more and more. What cho choice does Jonah have here? What's he going to do? Up to this point, he's, he showed quite a hardness of heart. If Jonah does nothing, what will happen? They're all going to die. What's, what's Jonah going to do? His act, if he does act, could save them from death. But how hard is his heart? How indifferent is he? Well, Jonah, a prophet, he, he's a prophet. He, he knows what the answer to this is, because God's told him. And it's really clear in the text. Does he admit his guilt before God and before these men? Does he repent? Does he turn? Does he, does he soften his heart? Or does he just stand his ground in his stubbornness? What's he going to do? Will he accept God's will or continue to reject it? 
he has the choice. What's he going to do? Does Jonah care about the condemnation of these sailors? Remember, they're pagans. They're the same pagans, non-believers, who he didn't want to go to Nineveh. What's he going to do for these pagans? Does he care about them? Or does he want to see them judged and destroyed like those of Nineveh? What is Jonah going to do? What would you do? We see a bit of a heart change in Jonah, and I don't know if you noticed it when I read this passage of Scripture to us a few moments ago. Up until now, Jonah really has been a man who hasn't really said much. But there is a noticeable response that begins to show that Jonah's heart is changing, that there is this Christian love beginning to to come out of him. Listen to how he says this. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. All of a sudden, he's not focused on himself anymore. He's being turned outward, which is the heart of Christian love. We see his heart softening. He's beginning to show love for his once enemies. He's beginning to have compassion. His heart is beginning to be filled with mercy and grace. And now, he's about to go to the heart of what type of love compels God's people to be people of love. Listen to to what he says. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to read it again. He said, pick me up. Hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah is concerned for their welfare. He desires to see them live. He desires for them to be delivered. He desires for their salvation. And he takes the responsibility for his own sin. And immediately they just threw Jonah overboard, right? they don't there is an incredible struggle that these mariners that these sailors are having in their inner being with tossing this man overboard we see this image of God imprinted on their heart they see a sanctity to life right But also there's an image that's been imprinted on their heart from the God who is love. We see them beginning to fear the Lord. Fear is that word I mean there is not being terrified, but revering. They're beginning to see that, that there's a God, the God of Jonah is something different than their God. In a way, they're beginning to respond to this God. They're beginning to take life actions in their own lives. They're beginning to change because of the impact that God and their understanding who this God, even though so small is, is changing them. And what we see here is that they're beginning to struggle with God's plan of salvation, God's plan of deliverance, God's plan of redemption for them. Think about this. 
you're in the boat, the storm is raging. One of the men in the boat says, if you throw me over, this whole raging storm will stop. How could the sacrifice of just one man turn away the anger of this almighty God? How could this raging sea be calmed in this way? What if Jonah's advice is wrong? If you think about it all through this, he's really said nothing. He's been quite silent. (laughs) Is this just Jonah's way out? (laughs) Which is going to leave them in greater peril, which they which as we read earlier, they're afraid to, to do this because it might anger God even more. take him at his word we see the sailors hesitancy here we see they're struggling to believe to have faith that the sacrifice of one man could avert the anger of this god so what do they do this good news just seems too simplistic to sailors who've been on the sea their whole lives really it's just going to So what do they do? They buckle down. They grab their oars and they start rowing harder than they have up to this point. They take things into their own hands. Jerome, who was one of the early church fathers, argued that these men were willing to save Jonah's life by putting their lives at risk, getting him to shore. But the reality is, is it's probably not true. A sailor in a very violent storm would never head for shore because that would be a suicide mission. Your boat would be destroyed. This interpretation that Jerome had was really not true for that reason. And as I was thinking about these sailors who had been sailing on this sea for a long time, they knew where the little places were that you could go and find safe harbor from the winds. They knew the little nooks and crannies that would be on the leeward side so that the wind wouldn't get you and you would have some calmness. And so they're digging in to find one of those places. However, we see that their rowing simply couldn't bring them to what they desired. And their rowing was really a picture that they didn't believe in the good news of God's way of deliverance. And so they put their trust in their own wisdom, in their own efforts, in their own ways to get to safety. Any bells starting to ring for you? See, their unbelief was unbelief because it was such a simple solution. It wouldn't cost them anything. Nothing was required of them, which really made it unbelievable. (laughs) So they try to row. They try to get to safe harbor to get the problem out of their boat, maybe, (laughs) in a different way. And yet the harder they tried, the more effort they displaced, the more they rowed, the greater the storm became. Another commentator by the name of Sasson said this, 
They have failed to achieve. They failed to achieve their purpose as could be expected. For there is no alternative to accepting God's instruction, even when it seems unreasonable. The essence of faith. And so we see that there's really only one solution left for them. And they don't just fully, quickly embrace it. There's a nervous embracing of this plan of God's. They're wrestling with embracing this plan. They nervously embrace it. Their nervousness comes as their hearts are continued to grow in fear and reverence for Jonah's God. And here in verse 14, it says, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So there's a nervousness in believing and placing their faith in God in his plan of how they would be saved. And we see them fearfully surrendered to God's plan for their salvation. There's a story that a rabbi told. It's quite a humorous story of how the sailors finally came to the conclusion that it was safe to toss Jonah completely overboard. And so they sought to, to test God a little bit who they were beginning to fear And here's what the Jewish rabbi once said about the sailors. They took Jonah and they placed him and held him over the edge of the boat into the sea up to his knees. And as long as they held him there up to his knees, the storm began to abate. It began to calm down. And they'd take Jonah and they would put him back up on the deck of the boat. And what would happen? It began to rage again. They're like, oh, okay. So they, again, they take him and they held him down all the way up to his neck. And it calms again. They take him back up and they put him on the deck. And what happens? The storm begins to go crazy again. So finally they figured that, okay, I guess we believe you, God. And they threw him over. I don't think that's what happened. But there's a picture there of this this reticence to embrace God's plan of salvation, wondering if it really is going to work. We see Jonah here and two responses to the storm. We see Jonah who knew God, who understood who God was, and he knew that the only response that one could have to God's plan was to throw yourself on the mercies of God by faith and trusting yourself to God's plan and will. On the other hand, we see the pagans, those who didn't believe in Jonah's God, those who do not yet understand Jonah's God, but are moving in that direction. They still took things into their own hands. They began to row even harder than before in hopes of getting themselves out of trouble into safe harbor. And also of getting maybe the trouble out of their boat to no avail. So we see Jonah taking responsibility for what he had done, his rebellion, and how it impacted those around him. He doesn't blame, he doesn't get angry, he just surrenders himself to God. On the other hand, the other thing that we see, and, and as someone who loves God and who worships Jesus, we see a picture here. We see a picture in Jonah of a man who's giving his life as a substitute for the sailors, which is the heart of Christian love. 
a willingness to put yourself in a place so that others would live. Willing to make sacrifice so that others can experience life. And Jonah's surrendering self to the mercies of God is pointing you and it's pointing me to the person and the work of Christ. His life for their life. His life would appease the anger and the wrath of God towards the sailors and they would be saved. They would be delivered. They just had to trust in Jonah and his word. And in God's mercy, what we also see with Jonah is that we see that Jonah is saved by the mercy, by the grace, by the steadfast love of God. God relents in destroying Jonah. There's rebellion and a fish comes, a great fish comes and swallows him up. And we know the end of the story, right? The fish gets upset with his stomach and pukes him up on the shore and he's alive. There's a resurrection. It's a picture of Jesus. Many times you and I, when we think of the good news of Jesus Christ, when we think of the gospel, when we think of the story of Jonah and him being in the, in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, we think of Christ and how he was crucified on the cross, was died, died, was buried for three days and was raised from the dead. We think of Jesus sacrificing his life so that we would be saved, so that our lives would be spared. We know that Jesus did this to reconcile us back to God. He did this to give us eternal life. We've been saved from God's anger. Salvation is that you are saved from God. And Jesus has done that perfectly and completely. No rowing required. Faith, trusting in the mercies of God and what Christ has done for you on your behalf as a substitute. He stood in our place to appease God, to pay the price that we deserve for our rebellion. That we would be, in Christ, declared not guilty. And the storm is calm. And so when we think of the gospel, when we think of the good news, that's what we think of, and rightly so. And we, like the pagans, are gripped when we see the salvation that comes through one man giving his life for us. And we fear the Lord exceedingly and we begin to offer sacrifices and we make vows. Think about Romans 12, 1 and 2. All of Romans up to this point, the first 11 chapters are about God's mercy towards you in Christ, the substitute who gave his life so that the storm would be calm. And our response is, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so many of you here you go, yeah, okay, well, I believe that. I believe in the gospel, and I've, I've given my life to Christ, so oh, that's awesome. On next. But what I want to help you to understand this morning, there are two sides 
where the gospel plays into our lives. There's our justification, which we're talking about, where we're saved from the storm and reconciled with God. But there's still a lot of storms in our lives, is there not? Squalls, difficulty, wrestling with the effects of sin. And they still impact us. And we, like the sailors, we can find ourselves falling into the pattern of thinking that we can get ourselves out of the mess. I am always amazed at how my my personal reading of God's word connects and everything's so connected because it's it's one God who's giving us his word. And so this past week I went back and I started my Bible reading program for this year. I'm a month late because I've been reading other things. And this year I'm reading through chronologically the first 11 or 12 chapters of Genesis, and then it jumps to Job. That's the chronological order. It's really fascinating. It gives you some perspective. And so I was reading in this week the first three chapters of Genesis, and so I want to talk about fig leaves, leather pants, and Christ. It'll make sense in a minute. I'm reading the account of God's creation. I'm reading God's the account of the creation of Adam and of Eve, and then we know that as they're in the garden, God gives them one command, right? You can eat of any tree in the garden, but do not eat or touch one of those trees or you will surely die. Okay? So we see that Jonah's struggle is not quite so unique. The word comes to Adam and Eve, and what do they do? Well, they begin to look at it and see that it was a delight to the eyes. And they started moving closer, closer, closer. That's kind of how deception and sin works, doesn't it? Closer. And then moving closer and closer to the fruit, they're moving farther and farther away from the presence of the Lord. Right? God's word has always been given to us to give us life, but we can fall into this idea, well, You know, I don't know if I really want to follow God. He's going to take away a lot of fun. (laughs) Fun as we define it. But actually, it's robbing us of life. It's always been that way. When we or they disobeyed God's word, what happened? It brought about the great storm that you and I live in. A world with sin and the effects of sin. From death to sickness, relational struggles and difficulties, insecurities breakdown in our relationship with God himself, pride, deception. We find ourselves fleeing from the presence of God, blaming one another for things that we should take responsibility for because we're trying to find a place for sin to land and make sense of. Shame, guilt, pride, coveting. I mean, you could go on, right? Things that you and I experience and the effects of every day. And then we get to Cain and Abel, the first two brothers on the planet. And one of them kills the other one because he feels insignificant and compared to his brother and a bit jealous. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, this is a question you can answer. As soon as they sinned, what was the first thing that they did to try to deal with the effects of sin? They covered themselves with fig leaves. 
So I'm reading this, and I'm like, I'm like, fig leaves. I googled fig leaves this week. How long do fig leaves last? One to two days if they're refrigerated. Random. But then I began to think about this. When you and I attempt to deal with our storms in life, with, with sin and the effects of sin, in our own strength, and our own wisdom, it, it's like fig leaves, it's temporary. It doesn't last. And we find ourselves having to try to fix the solution again and again and again and again. It never gets anywhere. Every few days, more effort would be needed to deal with the covering up of their shame, with their guilt, with their separation from God. And yet it was all futile. Because your and my man's attempt to deal with the storms will always be temporary. And as we continue on in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, it said this, And then the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Adam and Eve didn't make garments of skin. Adam and Eve didn't make sacrifice. This would have been the first time blood was ever shed in the history of the world. God makes a sacrifice. Blood is shed. And he takes the skins of these animals that were sacrificed, substituted for them on their behalf, to give them a more permanent solution. And notice it here that God clothed them. He didn't hand them the clothes and say, okay, go find a private spot over here and get in out of your fig leaves. No, he clothed them. There's an intimacy in that. That is the love and the tenderness that God, the creator of the universe, who they've just rebelled against, clothes them becomes them in their hiding and their fleeing from him. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What a picture here in the garden already that there was something greater than an animal that would be needed to give its life as a solution to cover us from all of those hurts and pains. And in the end, only God himself in the person of Christ and only the blood of God himself could satisfy God himself. For only the blood of Christ was of infinite value that could pay for your and I's infinite offense against a holy God. See, only the person of Christ could ever be the safe eternal harbor for our souls for the needs that we have deep in, inside of ourselves. And, and you know that the effects of sin and culture. I just, I, I googled again today how many abortions happen in Canada each year. Can you guess? 100,000. In the States, it's a million. 
Maybe some of you are okay with that. I think any time we take a life, we put ourselves in the place of God. And I notice how we've, we've, we've turned the conversation around to a woman's right to choose because that's easier to, to say than the taking of a human life and the right to take a human life. Or this week we were reminded of Bell Let's Talk, which is helping us and making us aware of mental illness and its impact on our lives and the impact on many in this room from depression or anxiety or myriad of different things, the effects of sin. Or we look at relational struggles, divorce rates or abuse that some loved ones show other loved ones. Just think about this week of some of the fear that's happening in our global community over viruses or homelessness or natural disasters or addictions. There's so many effects of the storm. There's so many squalls that we still face in life. There are many and to varying degrees, and but we all face them. And as Christians, even though we live by faith in Christ and have been delivered from the storm, we still need his deliverance in these other storms. We still need his deliverance in these other difficulties. Even though the degree or the intensity of the storms different, differ in each of our lives, we know that scripture says that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who've been ac- called according to his purpose. There's mystery in those storms. God pursues his people and he loves his people. There's places in your life where you seem to come up against a wall or you're facing a difficulty, times of darkness, struggling with sins and attitudes, experiencing those effects of sin. They are meant and given to you so that you would find rest in the strong in Christ. How often do I find myself, like the sailors, like Adam and Eve, rowing or sailing for thee, rather than entrusting myself by faith to Christ and the good news and the promises that he's given me through the gospel? So, so I want you to understand that a lot of times when we think of the gospel, we think of it for just our salvation, but it's also for your transformation and your sanctification, your growth in Christ. So what are some of the st- what are some of the storms that we face? Well, I'm a remember I'm reminded of a few different stories that maybe will put some flesh onto this for you this morning. One of them is is financial security. That's such a big thing in our culture. You see it on commercials all the time, Freedom 55, all these different things, especially around retirement. But I remember a story about a man, let's call him Bob. And Bob had lost his job. He had taken great comfort in his job. He was very good at his job. In fact, many people talked about Bob and built him up because he was so good. And so he found a bit of an identity. And he was very successful and he kept rising up in his career. However, one day, the company made decisions to downsize. And Bob lost his job. And you can guess how he felt, right? Completely devastated. 
he was gripped by this deep sense of failure, his sense of security, worth, value, significance, shaken to its core. Is God even good? Does God love me? He was part of a life group in, a, in, his, in his church, and they all began praying that Bob would get another job, which we should pray for. But what if this gracious storm was a gift from God to Bob because Bob was rowing and sowing instead of relying on his heavenly father to be his provider and to have a sense of security that was everlasting, not based on some physical job or a sense of worth and significance that comes through faith in Christ, which could satisfy those longings. What if God was pursuing Bob's heart so that Bob might find his rest in God and not in the gifts that God was so graciously giving him? And how quickly we can go and pray that Bob would get a job rather that Bob would find meaning and significance in relationship with his heavenly father through Christ. See, Bob needs to hear the gospel. He needs to hear the good news of a father who loves him. And when he sees him through the person and the work of Christ, he says, well done. And nothing can change that. And here the father had taken steps to remind Bob that he was to live and find his meaning in serving a different king in a different kingdom other than himself and his job. In fact, Bob had got so good at his job and done very successful for himself that he kept upgrading everything in his life. But really, God's call on Bob's life was to use his resources to lift others out of poverty, not to become more different kingdom mentality. He needed to be reminded that he was on a mission, not for self-glorification, but for the glorification of a heavenly father who would love him and sacrifice and shed his blood for him. Bob needed to be reminded of the freedom that he had in Christ. Bob needed to be reminded that, that his weary w- weariness was coming from rowing and rowing and rowing and never getting to shore. So God was taking Bob from trusting in that which was temporary. And God was clothing him again with eternal life through faith. What about insecurities? What about your insecurities? I have always been a super insecure person. When I was 18 years old and went to Bible college, it was the first time I'd ever left my town, the first time I'd ever seen a ship, a ferry, I guess that's what they're called, which I got totally mocked on. I thought it was a ship, but apparently it's a ferry. I was 18 years old. I weighed 108 pounds. I was tiny. Through most of my high school, I was made fun of. I was beat on. And my response to all that was usually to cry or to run and hide, to get away by myself. And as I've been reflecting on the way that I deal with my insecurities today, I see these patterns that keep creeping back up. When I was young, I spent the majority of my time on a BMX. That was my thing. And I would go for hours, five, six, seven hours, and I would drive my BMX, and I would ride it, and I would ride it. And I got quite good at it. 
And if I wasn't doing that, I would grab my fishing rod and my dog, and we would head down to the river that was not very far from my house, and I would fish. But I never would invite anyone to go with me because I was terrified that I would be rejected. Those insecurities still haunt me to this day. It's very easy for me to sit in my office alone, right? Because I don't want to be rejected. All of you have stories of insecurity in your life, and a lot of it comes from the way that you were brought up, and not right or bad things. Some of you have, have insecurities because you were abused and hurt by someone that was very close to you. Some of you here are, have been very hurt and abused by authorities, Those, or it could be a teacher, it could be someone. And so every time someone says or asks you to do something who's over you or implies something to you immediately, there's something that just visceral that comes up within you. Maybe you grew up in a family where you could never do anything right, and this is what my, my son said to me the other day, because that was my family as well. My dad's way was the right way. Any other way was the wrong way, even if the result was the same. And I noticed I've been projecting that onto my son, and he was hurt the other day. Yeah, Dad, I never do anything right. Everything I do is wrong. And so I had to humble myself and go to my son and apologize, right? It's amazing when you start studying Scripture, all the things that come up in your life. There was a study done with kids who were shooting basketballs into a net. They noticed that some of the kids who, who had quite good, I don't like the word self-esteem because I think it's great esteem. I think self-esteem is too self-centered and not Christian. That's a whole other sermon. But anyways, the kids who had some sense of self-esteem would just try and try, and if they got whatever, the kids who were totally afraid of failure would stand way out on the outside beyond their three-point arc, and they would just kind of them if they got one in cool but they there was no expectation to get it in right there's no expectation to get it in the net then i can't fail what are your insecurities are you afraid you're going to be a failure as a as a mom that's a big one there's so many pressures on moms today Well, in Christ, let me tell you, moms here this morning, when the Father looks at you through Christ, he sees a perfect mom. She's holy and blameless. She's got it all together. But how often we put these expectations of rowing and take these onto to moms and dads and family. If you grew up in homes where only the wrong was pointed out and you were never encouraged, then there's an insecurity that's grown deep in your heart. And what you will find, like I have found, is you will begin to find that your rowing takes the form of pointing faults out in others or blaming others or not taking responsibility. That is just your attempt to deal with the sin in your heart outside of Christ. It started in the garden. And 
about him, not her. Devil made me do it. So that's why as a kid I would push myself to excel in sports because then I would be accepted. They would want me on their team. But I also got very good at being quite sarcastic and lashing out. But it was really a way of me trying to hide my insecurities. And those who were mean to me, who picked on me and hurt me, as I look back, they were just dealing with their insecurities too. Oh, I wish someone would have told me what God thought of me in light of who Jesus and what Jesus had done for me. So many years wasted in response to man rather than living in response to Christ. So many fig leaves sowed. So many efforts taken to row to find that safe harbor. But there is only one ballast that will keep your ship from tipping over. And it's Christ. There is only one foundation to stand on. And that is the rock of Christ. see what I'm trying to say is the gospel isn't just for your salvation it's for your sanctification it's for the saving you of all these other little storms some of you love to control you love to be in control and then what happens is you get really anxious and rightly so because you're not in control God is right that's why you don't have to be it's exhausting to stay in control The other one that I think is big today, and I'll end on this one, and there could be a whole bunch of different examples, but one of the ones that I see today is even though we're busy and we're connected in so many different ways through social media, one of the, the things I see the most, even when our faces are smiling and everything looks good, is that we are a culture of people who are very lonely. story of a missionary lady who was going to go on the mission field so she went to Bible school she trained in the language for the place that she was going to go but she'd made a she'd made a vow or said to God I will gladly go where you want me to go if you give me a husband day of her departure was getting closer and closer and on the day of her departure still no husband you can imagine what was happening to her heart questioning the goodness of God God look what I'm doing for you look what I'm willing to do for you bitterness and anger began to seep into her heart because she had such a fear of being lonely she began to question the goodness of God but in this storm in her heart God began to reveal to her that she was asking God to bend to her will rather than surrender to his real will. And so she was rowing. She was sowing fig leaves, making deals with God to somehow change him. Rather, God wanted her to bend to his will, which was best. Loneliness can make us do a lot of things and change our relationship with God. So we try to cover up that loneliness by Netflix, by our jobs. I've seen many single people who are lonely and 
so much want someone to love them, give up the very things that they say they would never give up. They give up their integrity and they give up their sexuality for the love of another person other than Jesus and they live with those regrets and hurts the rest of their lives. You don't know how many marriage people I've talked to that one is a believer, one isn't a believer, and the struggle that they've had, and it started because they gave their heart to someone who didn't love Jesus. So if you're young here this morning, listen to that. Hear it. Because the most important thing as a Christian to you is your relationship with Jesus. And when you can't share that with the physical person that's closest to you, it is so difficult. Loneliness. In Matthew 8, 23 to 27, it says this, And when he, Jesus, got into the boat with his, his disciples, followed him, and behold, there arose another, a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. And they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you have little faith. Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? I don't know what storm you find yourself in this morning. I don't know what you're worried about, what you're anxious about. I don't know those places in your life where you're trying to find significance, affirmation, well done, where you're trying to deal with your loneliness or a sense of accomplishment or success or where you're trying to find your security. I don't know what storm you're in this morning, but God does. And Christ right now might even look at you and he might say to you this morning, oh, you of little faith. Don't you realize what I'm Because as we look to the cross of Christ this morning, as you are about to go and you're, out, you're about to take some, some, some bread and dip it in the wine, which is a reminder of what Christ has done, there's a promise that you get to be a part of. That promise is, no matter what, I will never leave you or forsake you. You can't be lonely because I live within you. But also when you come to the table and you dip that bread into the wine, that's how we're going to do it this morning, there's a reminder that you are part of the family of God. You are sons and daughters. You are brothers and sisters. You're not alone. Do you believe that? Do you live that way? Do you, do you embrace that by faith? So as we come to the table this morning, we're casting ourselves on the mercy of God, saying, yes, yes, I believe that you are here, that you are with me, that you love me. This is the evidence that one man could sacrifice his life and calm the storm. And so you, you embrace hope, mercy, grace. Hear this this morning. If you have faith in Christ, you are not alone. You have a safe harbor. You have an anchor in the storm, and it is the person of Christ. It is the creator of the universe. Just think about it. They're in this boat, and Jesus goes, I'm here. He's the one who's created everything. He sustains the universe by the word of his power. And he lives within us by his spirit.
stop growing. Stop making for yourselves fig leaves. And come to the table and show yourself once again. And we get the privilege of doing it every week. Show yourself once again on the mercies of Christ by faith. Because he is gracious. He is merciful. He is steadfast in his love for you. And he will relent if you die for him. Because Christ Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The greatest gift that God has given to us is himself. The, create, the creator of the universe, the God who said, let there be light, the God who breathed, Life into Adam to making a living creature is the same God who sustains the universe, who causes the sun to rise, who causes your heart to beat, who's in over and through all things. He has given his life for you, and now he lives in you if you have faith in Christ. And nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Even the last great storm of death itself cannot tear you from the arms of God. That will finally be the deliverance that we've always longed so I, I urge you to come to Christ this morning. And you don't have to come to him all the time and entrust yourself to him. Maybe you're struggling with sin this morning. This is a great time to come and eat of something that will satisfy, to drink something that will satisfy. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that we're reading 2,500 years or more ago and how it so clearly points us to you, Jesus. That the rising of the sun points us to you. And so I want to thank you for the bread and for the wine that you've served us. meant to remind our hearts of where safety is found, where rest is found, where life is found, nothing else. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning that you would miraculously and sovereignly by your grace move Jesus in their inner being, conforming them to your will. And it would be a delight and a joy in our hearts. But Father, even if we go, that we would be like C.S. Lewis who said, I went kicking and screaming. That you come, have your way, bless us, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.